Guys, good morning. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. If you walked in late and missed me talking before, um, my name's Chris. We, we are, as Peter was saying, starting a new series today. Exciting day for us at the church. We start a new series. Uh, this one will take us through the summer, and it is on 1 Timothy, which um, will give us the opportunity to explore a subgenre of Scripture called the pastoral letters. So the, the genre would be the epistles or letters um, that of the New Testament. The subgenre would be the pastoral letters. So there are three pastoral letters of the New Testament, First and Second Timothy and Titus. Um, just a few things to um, set the stage then for the series, a couple of things that maybe will allow you to kind of hang your hat on things contextually and get your bearings um, that we usually like to start with. But um, specifically for this series, uh, the question, what are uh, the pastoral letters? There are three then, as I mentioned. Um, Paul, the apostle, wrote to all of them. The guy who used to kill Christians and is now a, an apostle, a church planter and a, and a leader. So a lot of cool stuff. They actually brings that up in this letter too as a sign of God's grace, that he was chosen as the worst of people uh, to lead the, the expansion of the gospel into unreached areas for a reason, to show that it's not by works that we are saved, uh, but rather by God's choice just to love us. And we'll uh, have fun talking more about that a few weeks from now. But anyway, he's the, the author, and he writes to Timothy and Titus. And uh, Timothy was a pastor in the Ephesian church, Titus in the Cretan church. But Paul writes to them to essentially say, I love you, I'm praying for you, stay encouraged, preach the word, refute false doctrine, train up new leaders, care for the outcast, organize and lead your churches healthily. In fact, um, at one point he says this in, the, in his letter, he says, I'm writing these things to you, Timothy, so that you may know how to behave in the church. And so there, there are, there's a lot to these letters, but this is one clear, so what, right? Like there's, the church is important, behavior in the church, organizing the church to look a certain way uh, is very important. Uh, things that might sound oddly specific uh, to many of you or some of you, uh, God cares about this. Uh, there's a reason why churches have basically gathered uh, in similar ways, even cross-denominationally or cross-branches on the tree of Christendom. Uh, if you look at just the broader uh, scope of history, there's a reason why things have stayed the course, like preaching and sacraments and leadership development and pastoral care, uh, refuting false doctrine, clear boundaries to what's true and false. Um, there's a reason why these things have existed, and um, we'll, we'll talk about that in the series. But, but Paul's also saying to Timothy and Titus, keep your head up even when you're criticized. Pastors are criticized a lot, um, but stay encouraged. You, you have been called to this. It will be difficult, it may even cost you your life, but it's worth it. Uh, caring for Jesus' bride is, is worth it. I was actually uh, coaching a, a guy, a friend of mine, who actually stood in my wedding um, uh, when I got married, but he, uh, he was a kind of an interim pastor. He was thrust into an interim role um, when a lead pastor left this church situation. I was talking, talking to him through a few things, and I said that very thing to him. I said, I know this is hard, I know the future of your church is tenuous, at best, but caring for Jesus' bride is worth it. It's worth it. Uh, it is a high calling, but what you're doing matters to God. It's uh, Jesus cares about his bride, like a good husband cares about his wife. Uh, Jesus cares deeply for his bride, his blood-bought bride, and what you're doing and stepping into this interim role is worth it. I, I think that Paul like, has that kind of sentiment uh, for Timothy, and so we'll, we'll talk along those lines to this series. Now, if, if there's a voice in your head that's saying, I'm not a pastor, and I don't intend to be, 
uh, this series is not going to be for me, then I would encourage you not to listen to that voice because it's not from God. Uh, but, but instead to remember that whatever your role in a church, these letters are a part of your Bible, which means God wants non-pastors and pastors to know and love these letters, or they just wouldn't be there, right? Or they'd be more specific. Um, but look, actually, look at this brief list of questions that 1 Timothy raises. What is the gospel? Of course, uh, that, that's always there. But also, what should a pastor's job description look like? How do Old Testament laws apply to, new, to Christians today? Can women teach or preach in the church? Who is qualified to be an overseer or an elder, a pastor, or a deacon? How do I spot false teachers? Why do some Christians give up and stop being a Christian or leave the faith entirely? Why does that happen? What teachings of demons do Christians regularly entertain without realizing it? That's a really fun one. Why is caring for widows and the poor such an important part of the Christian ministry? And finally, what should wealthy Christians do with their money? All right, I think all Christians, pastor or not, should have a vested interest in knowing the answer to all of those questions. All of them. Uh, now, some of them are more important than others. That first question is the most important question out of that list. They are not on equal footing. Paul doesn't treat them on equal footing. The Bible doesn't treat them on equal footing, so you shouldn't either. And yet, they're in the Bible. So we should consider these things, right? And uh, submit ourselves to God's answers to them as we consider our lives and the church and community and um, uh, good theology and uh, so forth. Even very practical things, like some of you might not be pastors, but you might be a part of hiring a pastor, right? Or a part of a church that calls a new pastor. Um, that's a big deal. So uh, things like that as well. All right, so again, all Christians have a vested interest here. Um, First Timothy is for all believers because this, this book's about the church. And even more, it's about Jesus, who is the true pastor of our souls. And that's part of the point. Um, to write about pastors is to write about Jesus. Because Jesus is the true pastor. Um, first uh, Peter, in the New Testament, calls Jesus the chief pastor, the chief shepherd. So when you write about human pastors, you are writing about Jesus. You cannot separate them. Yes, human pastors are lesser. They're under shepherds. They are sinners and will always be imperfect. But you can't disconnect those things. And we're not going to do that either. Uh, and also, when you write about the church, you write about the gospel because the church is the blood-bought bride of Jesus and should reflect that in all that she is. And so again, have those two things in mind as we go forward in the series and do not disconnect the specificity of the letter from Jesus and the gospel. That is a major pitfall to just reading your Bible in general that a lot of people fall into, uh, but maybe especially with things like this where you might come at it and thinking, well, I'm not a pastor, so, you know, I'll shelve this thing. I uh, encourage you not to do that. Today we're going to look at... Um, the letter to Timothy and, and to us, how this is a letter from God to us as well, and not just from Paul to this one man, Timothy, uh, from the first two verses. Um, and, and these questions of who is Timothy and how does his letter begin? I'm going to read from Acts 16, 1 to 3, 2 Timothy 1, 3 to 5, and then today's passage, 1 Timothy 1, 1 to 2, for a greater kind of context to who Timothy is. Let's read all those uh, in full to begin. First of all, from Acts. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, 
And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. 2 Timothy 1. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience. As I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith. A faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and then your mother Eunice. And now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. And then last, uh, today's passage, 1 Timothy 1, 1 to 2, Paul's greeting. Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. All right, so again, I, we're going to break this down into two big things. First, Paul's greeting right here, and then the question of who is Timothy, which we'll get to. But first, Paul's greeting, which, which is a pretty standard fare for Paul and for ancient letter writing in general, but still, again, chock full of theology that's really easy to miss when we read too quickly. The first thing I think that's really key and kind of unique here to Paul's greetings across the spectrum of his letters in the New Testament is this clear mention of, by command, I am an apostle. And so Paul identifies himself, but then he says he recognizes God as the origin of his leadership, his role as a leader, his role as an apostle or kind of chief pastor. He says, I'm saved and I'm called into this role by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus. That's verse 1. That's the stage-setting nature of verse 1, which will feed into the rest of the book in a lot of ways as he talks to Timothy and wants him to know the same thing, that you too, Timothy, are chosen. Very important for pastors to know. All of you who are pastors in this room of Hiawatha or will be someday um, or who encourage pastors, it's very important for you to know that, that you have that role by grace, not by works. You didn't earn it. You didn't stay at Hiawatha for a certain season and earn it by your tenure. We don't look for people who've been a part of Hiawatha for a while and say, well, you've earned it because you've been here. You've put in your dues. We look for the calling of God on their life. Um, that might seem kind of nebulous, but it's the way that God works through the identification of spiritual gifts, the identification of a person as um, having the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and calling that, that individual into, into the role. Uh, hugely important to understand that. If you, if you think that being a, being a pastor or a leader is earned, you go to school for a degree, and you think, I earned it by all the hard work, then the specificity to the letter of, saying, of Paul saying, only these people should be pastors, only these people should preach in a church, will make no sense whatsoever. Because we'll say, well, isn't it just those who put in the work that get to earn the role? It won't, this letter won't make sense then. But to flip it and say, God, God's grace allows people into the role uh, undeservedly uh, changes everything. And so have that in mind as we go uh, forward in the letter and talk more about the role of, of pastor. Kind of on that level, like when people ask me what I do for a living, I connected with an old high school friend a few years ago and he asked me, what are you doing now? And I said, I'm a pastor. And he said, interesting. Uh, very Minnesota word. Right? And, then, and then he says, do you like it? And my answer was, definitely. I love my job. Um, I would, I would never want to do anything else, and I, I still mean that to this day. Um, but also in my mind to that question, I remember thinking, the way he asked the question, it made, it made it feel like I chose the job, you know, like I had a, 
uh, a few choices on the table, like it was either graphic designer or plumber or teacher or pastor. I'm like, I think I'll do pastor and I'll just like work for that. That's not really how it works. You know, like the job, at least in my story, the job chose me. I didn't choose, I don't want to be a pastor. And my church said, my old church said you should be. And I said, okay, and now here I am, you know. And so, and I want to be, don't get me wrong. It's just that it, it, the job chose me. Uh, God, God chose me, even though I was very unqualified and, and didn't deserve it. Um, God was at work and it was all his grace. And that's, I think that's the, for, for most pastors or in general, obviously, I should say all pastors, but true pastors, um, there's at least a whiff of that underlying story. Um, so that's why I think it's important for us, you know, to, uh, to understand, you know, and, and this is not just for pastors. Um, it is for, it is for all of us, you know, saying I'm an apostle by the command of God is the same as saying I'm saved from my sins by the command of God. It's the same thing. Why are you saved? A pastor saying, why am I here in this role? Well, God wanted me to be. Is the same thing as saying, why am I saved at all? Well, God wanted me to be. If we talk differently about those things, I, I, I hope that, that, that there's some dissonance in your mind over that issue because the Bible doesn't talk about those things in different terms. There should be dissonance between them. Why do I think that I'm saved because I wanted to be when the Bible says that you're an apostle because God wanted to be? Like there actually should be dissonance between those if we operate in different terms. And so um, being, thinking then as a Christian, looking at these, this language and saying, man, God loves me and God saved me and I'm saved by his will. I'm saved when he spoke the word of his son over my life and he moved in my heart to respond to his gospel. Um, the, these passages should shape how we talk about these things. Romans 16, I'll read again. Uh, or, I'll read, we say this a lot at the end of our services, but I'll read it. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. And this is the key. According to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. What, what Paul is saying there is God's command and God's will has brought about our faith. We believe in Jesus because God said, let there be light and let there be belief in the heart of a faithless individual. Um, and so, of course, it's going to look like we're making choices and responding to God, and, and we're still called to have faith and respond, of course. But the idea here is that we have to add on this idea of God not dangling a carrot before your face, saying, figure it out, grab for it, it's up to you. But God loves you too much to dangle a carrot. He moves towards you. He commands light. He commands faith. He commands the obedience of faith into your heart. Um, rather than leave it, leaves it up to you to manufacture it. You guys see the difference? It's difficult, right, to fully understand these things uh, and apply them, but we have to, th this passage invites us into a way of thinking, I think, that makes more of God and less of us. All right, the next piece is uh, the phrase, Jesus, our hope, which I love, um, especially, I was thinking this week, coming off a year like 2020, in 2021, we, we need not just this reminder, but this grace, and that is, he is our hope, right? Jesus is our hope. Our hope is not politics, or vaccines, or health, or long lives, or secure jobs, um, or fertility, or a future marriage, or anything like that, or, or certainly not our works. The Bible never says, your hope is in how you are a good person. The Bible never says, even, your hope is in how well you've responded 
to God's grace. Never even says that. It says Jesus himself is your hope. Do you believe that or not? Is he himself your hope? Is his work on the cross for your sins and dying for your sins and his triumphal resurrection, is that, is that event and he himself your hope or is it some, something to do with you, right? And we can read over these things really quick. But what's your hope? What do you put your hope in? But our hope before God is not in anything we do, nor in our perfect circumstances, but in Christ's blood. Like we uh, just sang, um, I believe we just sang, or is that the last song? I'm forgetting first service. Anyway, uh, we're, we're sing, we sing about Christ's blood being our hope. Our trust is in his blood alone. Um, so do you want to live, so all of you are Christians right now, it, it, do you want to live like a Christian? Which you, you're all saying yes, or you probably should say yes, right? Do you want to live like a Christian? Then I would say, believe that that's true, and then live like it. Believe that Jesus is your only hope, and then live like it. Let it put a smile on your face when the world is frowning. Let it unclench your hands from the circumstances of your life, so you can put a open palm towards God and say, you're the worthy one, not me. So you have open hands to serve and love others with and not clench to your life. He alone is your hope, not your life, not your circumstances, not your good works, not your comfort, not another leader or king or president or governor or policy, but Jesus Christ um, alone. I also like here that Paul just says Jesus is your hope. He doesn't say Try to make Jesus your hope more, even though that's not a bad thing, right? He, he's actually saying, no, I'm, I'm telling you, Timothy, Jesus is your hope. So the Bible right now is just saying to, to all of you, and all of you are in different places with how well you're doing this. He's saying to those of you who are struggling to make Jesus your hope, and those of you who are making Jesus your hope equally, Jesus is your hope. He just is. If, if you believe it, if you fail to believe it, if you're struggling to believe it, Jesus is your hope because he is your hope not based on how well you believe he's your hope. He's your hope based on him just being your hope and him coming into the world to save you by grace, not by your works. So that's actually really consoling too, isn't it? That the Bible commands this, speaks it over you in love rather than says, here's a principle, now go and work hard to believe it and you're saved based on how well you believe it. It's like, that's like, holy cow. Talk about bad news. How would you ever know how well, right, or perfectly, or, you know, nobody, nobody, I mean, puts their hope well in Jesus, right? I mean, none of you have this year. None of you have. I haven't. I know I haven't. I've put my hope in 20 other things over Jesus at some point in 2020 and 2021. But we're not saved. We're saved by grace, and we're saved by God commanding salvation into your heart and life. And so, if you have hope, a smidget, a, seed, a mustard seed of hope, that's enough, and it must be from him. And so be at peace. Then that uh, last phrase, grace, mercy, and peace, uh, again, th this is the gospel, guys. Uh, most of you know this, some of you don't. I know we've said this before recently in our 2 Corinthians series, but I'll say it again. Um, look what's wished upon you. Uh, law is not wished upon you here, but grace. Those are opposites. Uh, war is not wished upon you, but peace. And those are opposites. Everything's been done. The war is over. The Bible says the law has been fulfilled. That means abrogated. That means Jesus completed it. He was the finish line towards which it's pointing. So when he came, he replaced it. And he said, it's finished. 
And so there's nothing more to be done on that level of salvation. Everything is over, done, fulfilled. Uh, all deeds have been accomplished. A relationship with God then is better understood as letters written by the blood of Jesus than as stone tablets etched with the finger of God and handed to you to carry down a mountain and to keep perfectly. The Bible is intentionally set up as a movement from those stone tablets etched by the finger of God and hoisted upon a man's shoulders to carry down a mountain, intentionally moved from that to letters written by the blood of Jesus, love letters, to show the difference. And Christians like to blend them. We do it all the time. Many do. It's, it's what well, we all do. But to blend them is, is to be unfaithful to the Bible. It, it is to miss the point, miss the point of the story. Uh, God does not write to you in stone tablets anymore. Don't live like that. He's not writing commands to keep to stay saved anymore. Uh, you don't live in the old covenant anymore. Uh, that time is gone. Now he only writes to you by the blood of Jesus. Only. Only. There's not many and varied ways. Only one way. By him saying, I love you so much, I'm spilling my own blood for you. That's what the God of the universe says to you on repeat in the Bible. So think about these things. Allow the, 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 the Bible, the way that Timothy's greeted, to be the way that you're greeted by God. Um, you know, to, to really understand and feel the power of the introduction, I think that we have to do that. Grace, mercy, and peace for me, my child, God says to us. Not war and letter grades and disapproval and job reviews and law, my employee. But instead, grace, mercy, and peace, my adopted child, who I purchased out of the family of the devil by dying in their place as one of them. That's the story of the Bible. And that's the transfer of your citizenship, the transfer of your identity as a child of the devil to a child of God that's purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ alone. And so this greeting then becomes not just historical, it's, it's the way God is talking to you all in this room right now, right now. God is calling you a child if you're saved. Right now, he's saying, I offer you grace and mercy and peace, even with blood on your hands as a murderous individual, figuratively or literally. Even in that place, he says, this is, because my son has died for you, this is how I speak to you. Changes everything. All right, so with that said, we'll come back to some of these, of course, but um, I want to shift to this second question, which has more to do with Timothy. Um, I, I read from Acts 16 and 2 Timothy 1 earlier for more context, but Timothy was a disciple and student and protege, essentially, of Paul's. Uh, Paul left him in the city of Ephesus in Asia Minor, think modern-day Turkey, to pastor the church there. Um, the big question for today then, though, becomes, who is Timothy according to the Bible? Because the Bible is very specific with what it chooses to say about and record about him, and also what it doesn't say. It doesn't say a lot, most things, right? But it's very specific with who is he, who are his parents, how'd Paul find him, what did he do to him right away, um, and what's his kind of ethnic makeup. And we'll talk about some of these things today. Um, and who is he just as a Christian, so we'll see ourselves in him as well. Um, but the big question is, who is he according to the Bible? How does the person of Timothy himself... Um, teach us theology. Because to know Timothy on a historical level will not change your life, but to know him on a theological level will. All right? Okay, here we go. Number one, Timothy was indwelt by faith. 2 Timothy 1.5. Um, 
And I, I really like this because the, the way Paul talks about faith or trust in Jesus, it almost sounds as if the faith is personified. Like faith dwelt in Timothy's grandmother, then it dwelt in his mother, and now him. It's almost like faith was this person walking around a room deciding who to influence and to take up residence in at will. I mean, why not just say his mom and grandma had faith? That would be true, right? But it doesn't say that. It says faith dwelt in him. Like the the active idea there is the faith, right? Um, In other words, Lois and Eunice and and now Timothy were not sources of faith. Uh, Faith was not sourced by them, but indwelt. That's the whole point. Faith doesn't come from us. It's not sourced by us. It's a gift. It comes from outside. It says indwelt here. And so even though we're called to have faith, and that's good and very important actually, we also don't source it at the same time. We're we're indwelt by it as though it's an alien thing to our otherwise faithless souls. Colossians 1.6 talks in these terms when it says to the Colossian church, the gospel has come to you. It's traveled to you. Uh, it's, it's not just an idea, though, that traveled to you, nor a missionary, but Jesus Christ himself, who in John 1.14, it says, took on flesh, and then that same word, dwelt among us. And not just among us, but through the gospel in us. So let me just kind of state the obvious here and say, Paul, with the word indwelt, I mean, Paul is not, you know, he's an encourager, right? He's, an encur- he's trying to encourage Timothy with indwelt, not confuse or discourage him. Uh, and so to know then that it's not from us is an encouraging doctrine, um, even though it might be nebulous and kind of difficult to get our mind around. To know that faith indwells and is not sourced out of you is good for pastors to hear. It's good for Christians to hear. It's good for people who aren't Christians yet to understand. Because if that's true, if faith dwells in, and it's not from us, then we start to worry less about how much faith we have and whether we exude it enough. And we just start to have it based on the fact that we know it's come to us by grace. It's kind of, again, when Jesus talks in mustard seed terms about faith, he says, it's not the amount of your faith. Please hear that. It is not the size or amount of your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith. If you have a mustard seed size faith in Jesus, Jesus says, in me, if it's in the right direction towards me, then you are my child. You're saved. And so we have to be careful with talking in more faith terms and judging ourselves and others based on the amount when Jesus seems to say, oh, mustard seed's enough. It's good, sufficient. You know, the smallest thing ever, like size-wise of faith, yep, it's good, as long as it's in me. Because I save you. Your faith towards me, the amount of that, is secondary. So so in other words, kind of think of it this way. Which is more encouraging to you? Knowing that faith has indwelt you? Or me saying to you, you must have faith in higher quantities? Like it's probably the former, right? To believe that faith, Jesus Christ has set up residence in you and your faith is a sign of his, God's work in your life and his presence in you and he never leaves, never divorces, never changes his mind, never changes period. Knowing that versus 
just the statement, you must have more faith in higher quantities to Christians who already have faith. It's like, you know, it's bad news. The latter's bad news. So don't talk like that because the Bible doesn't. Instead, rest in the gospel, that faith in the gospel has come to you. You haven't gone to it. All right, the second piece is uh, Timothy was Jewish and Greek. Uh, the first time he comes up in the Bible, in Acts 16, um, this is a big deal. We apparently need to know this. <laughs> and on a historical level, it's kind of interesting. Um, in a lot of ways, Timothy's mixed race was advantageous to pastoring a church with both Gentiles and Jews in it because he was kind of both, especially after Paul circumcised him. And by the way, he was about, we're, we believe he was in his early 30s roughly um, at this point in his life, much younger than um, Paul, but yeah, so kind of a, a youngish guy, right? But, uh, early 30s. Anyway, after he was circumcised, he looked more Jewish, but again, ethnically, he was both. So to be in a church that had both, you know, maybe uh, kind of advantageous. But there's more than that. His mixture was also theological in, in nature, and just to take you back a little bit here into the Old Testament, if you weren't aware of this, or by way of reminder, these types of mixes between Jew and non-Jew were forbidden in the Old Testament. Jews were time and time again called to separate from Gentiles for, many, for different reasons, but the, the big one was to put on display and to dramatize how Man and God were separated by sin and how the law, God's commandments, led to more separation from God and each other. The entire old system was one of walls and veils and don't come closers and do not touches uh, commands and calls to separate from other people, which again was a sign of how much we had been separated from God due to our sin. If you know anything about food laws in the Old Testament, that's why food laws were given, to demonstrate the separation of different people groups, which in turn demonstrated the, the broad truth that sinners were not where God was. We were separated by an infinite chasm. So separation for a time in history had a theological point. It showed everybody, Jew and Gentile, how we were so far off from God. Interpersonal separation was just a you know, a, a notch in the wood of that or one more kind of domino in a line of things um, that showed that physically. But now in Christ, things are different. So when Jesus came and he made a New Testament that wasn't about walls or temples or veils or even laws anymore, um, and he made it by his blood, he opens up a new way for all people to enter God's presence. So because of that, there's no more need for the symbolism of nationalistic separation. Uh, John Christosom said in the 4th century, an early church father, commenting on the person of Timothy, says this, Thus, as these mixtures of Jews and Gentiles took place, the Old Testament law began gradually to be dissolved. See, what he's saying is, when you mix Jew and Gentile, you're breaking the rules of the Old Testament. So when you had them and they were endorsed by Jesus, not, not, you know, not denounced, but endorsed, and Jesus makes a way for that to happen, the whole systems are changing. The testaments are changing. The rules that stood for so long are being broken. And that's a good thing. Because now in Timothy, we have union. 
before we had Jew and Gentile separation because we had God and sinner separation. But now when we have Jew and Gentile union, we have God and sinner union. This is not just about interracial churches. This is about what they symbolize when they exist. And that's the better news of you and God being like this, which was not possible through the Ten Commandments. It was not possible through the law. In the Old Testament, Jew and Gentile were separated by the law, just like God and man were separated by the law. We could not keep it. We could not unionize ourselves with him. But in the New Testament, that mediator changes. The law is gone. Jesus comes in. And now we have Timothy-like union. We have Jews and Gentiles eating together. We have the eradication of food laws, which is what this whole, they were all about in the first place. No more food laws, Jesus says, because there's no more separation between God and sinners. All that stuff exists to tell the story of the gospel. And so, again... It shouldn't surprise us that Timothy is one of the key figures of the New Testament as a leader. His ethnic mix symbolizes the mixing of the divine and the human. The end of veils, of separation, temples, even the end of the law itself, which we could not keep, which led us away from God rather than close to him, so that now we affirm we are saved by grace, not by works Timothy's mixed race, in a lot of ways, then, is, is a picture of um, the, the, how the rules are changing, the stipulations. And now, um, it's union. Uh, it's union through, um, with God through Jesus' spilt blood. Aletha was sharing a, a podcast with me last week about, it was a Hidden Brain podcast. You guys heard of Hidden Brain? Um, really good podcast. But it was on Rwandan Civil War and how there was a Holocaust survivor turned uh, scientist who was positing that he thought that the thing that would allow for the end of these factions to be at war would be intermarriage. If you're intermarrying the different tribes, then that would be a thing that would kind of quell some of the battle. And so it's a podcast about that, which I won't go into for time today. But I just thought that's really interesting, you know, and how it fits with this, how you have if and when that would ever happen, um, it would happen because of the gospel and for the gospel. Because the idea there is that if union and intermarriages make for peace, the union of heaven and earth and God and flesh in the person of Jesus and the union of Jesus and his bride together is the thing that makes for peace, right? The intermarriage of God and sinners. The intermarriage of the divine and the human. Light and darkness right, is the thing that makes that bridge and brings us back to him. And so, um, this is a big bunny trail, but I just thought that was a really cool, um, you know, example of how we might see this play out, like, physically today, uh, today as well. Anyway, hope that helps. But anyway, last is Timothy was a Christ figure. I've been talking about this, but Timothy's uh, dual nature here also signifies Jesus's. He was two things. He was divine and human. Um, he is also called Paul's sent one. In a different letter, he is called his child in the faith as, as well. He is a bridge-like figure, uh, just like Jesus was. Remember, that as, as we talked about in our Esther series two weeks ago, Esther is one of these figures as well in being both Persian royalty and Jewish. The Bible is chock-full of these dual-nature head figures 
leader figures who are two natures in one to symbolize Jesus and to resemble him. And Timothy is another one of uh, those things here, even after Christ. And And the Bible is full of these types to remind us of many things, but one of which is how central the incarnation is to God's plan of redemption. God being incarnated into human flesh, becoming human. He had to be. Otherwise, there'd be no way to die in our place. I've said before, other religions say, become like God, whereas Christianity says, God became like you. Other religions say, become like God, become a better version of yourself, ascend, whereas Christianity says, no, don't do that. Don't become like God. Know that God became like you in your humanness, fallenness, to save you. So rest easy. Stop trying to go up. Come down. Because that's where he is. Why do we go up the ladder when Jesus has come down? Come down to where he is. Be a creature again. It's okay to be broken and to rest in his arms, right? That's the whole point. Does he save you or do you save yourself? The person of Timothy and his dualness being a leader is another, yet another reminder of the centrality of Jesus' divinity and his humanity. How it had to be both. Otherwise, there's no gospel whatsoever. There's no church, no Christianity, no faith. Everything comes crashing down. You also see it in his circumcision, how Timothy's bloody circumcision for others didn't have to be, and his tears uh, signified Jesus' shed blood for us, which he didn't have to do. And how he wept, how he's a man of sorrows, how he prayed for us and sweat blood over his impending death in Gethsemane. Um, that could be a whole other sermon, which I won't go into, but... But I did want to say this, and and I'll um, bring it back full circle by saying, on a related, like related to all this, I I think that on a human level, this is what makes for a good pastor. And and all earthly pastors will fail at this, uh, to be perfect. But this is what makes for a good pastor. Someone who is a bridge builder. Uh, Pastors should be obstacle removers. And I mean that is between people and God. They should be good at removing obstacles between people and God. Um, they are someone who resembles Christ and how he moves towards hurting people, becoming like them, yet embodying heaven to them as well. And they're people who suffer for their people. They shed, like Timothy, shed blood um, for Jewish Christians, um, though he didn't have to. Pastors suffer whether physically or in other ways. And, um, and, and then, so a lot of you guys are, some of your pastors in the room or will be, most of you aren't. I would actually widen out too and say, for all of you who are Christians, um, to think about the implications this has for your life as well. And by that I mean, in, in one sense, to go back to that duality idea, in one sense we all have a dual nature to us as, as Christians, don't we? We are exactly like non-Christians because we're just as human as they are, just as fallen, and yet we have heaven inside of us as well because Jesus lives there uh, by the Holy Spirit. And we've been washed. And when we understand that, it opens up, I think, a whole world of opportunity for how we think about evangelism and mission and loving other Christians and life in the church, how how to truly share the gospel with people and not a standard of living so much. You know, that, that's secondary at best. But think about what Jesus did and how his mix 
of the divine and the human, what that meant, this should inform how we live, uh, how we enter into sin without sinning. Because to enter into sin is to enter in where, where sinners live, where we all do, where, but where people are far from God are still there, to enter into it without sinning. In other words, we mix with unbelievers physically, but not spiritually, like Jesus mixed our sin without, with our sin without sinning himself. But again, all along, we, we show that we bring grace with our mixing and movement rather than holding back, waiting for people's moralistic ascension to our level. It's kind of like, uh, you know, in uh, Mark 1 where Jesus gets baptized. And one of the first things you hear about Jesus is he shows up out of nowhere, gets in line with sinners to get baptized. And you think, um, Jesus, you can come out of that line. I mean, you don't have to stand there, right? Like, what are you doing? You're getting in line with sinners, like you're looking exactly like a sinner by getting in line to be baptized by John the Baptist. Like, what in the world? But the Son of God did that, you guys. He didn't get in the water with John the Baptist and say, yeah, mm, yep, dunk that one a second time because he's especially filthy. Mmm, dang, you know? He's not a, his nature was one of entering into the worst of things in the universe for you and me. He became like sin even though he was sinless. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, one of the important verses in the whole New Testament. He became sin even though he was sinless. That, and if that wasn't the case, guys, bad news. If he came down like from Sinai, like Moses from Sinai, or stood in the water and graded us, he didn't grade people. He looked like a sinner, even though he wasn't. Just like on the cross, he looked like one. I mean, God, this is scandalous that God would do this. It should make you uncomfortable. It should be almost un, you know, unsightly. It should be a, it should be a scandal. It, if it's not, it's not gospel. Yet, best news ever, because we're the ones in line. You know? We're, we're in line to get washed up to our eyeballs in sin, and the Son of God gets in right behind us. Like, he entered into our sin for you and me. Uh, T- Timothy shed blood, even though he didn't have to. Uh, Paul and Timothy, they're entering into, and pastors should do this, um, all of us as Christians, it shapes the way we think about living in a fallen world. We bring grace and love, we enter into the mess of people's lives, we pronounce the cross, we pronounce forgiveness of sins, and we demonstrate it with our love. We don't hold back and make them come to us and achieve our level of moralistic perfection, whatever that even means. We don't talk like that, right? There's a reason why, because we know we're saved by grace. And if we do, we're wrong. We need to, we need to correct that. Um, and that could be towards Christians or non-Christians alike. So a couple of things in conclusion. I, I'll just read these. Um, I think the first thing we see here is believe the gospel. And I'll use language from today's passage to give shape to this. Jesus, God and man, the mix of heaven and earth, like Timothy was Jew and Gentile, traveled to us to suffer for us, to weep for us and bleed for us, and ultimately dwell inside us by his grace and through our faith. He came to bring peace and mercy to sinners by dying for us. And then, believe first, more important, most important, then second, live out. Uh, especially you pastors and leaders, but all of you Christians, you guys share in this reality. Let it inform how you talk about your conversion as though it were by com- God's command, not by your works. Let it inform your hope, 
how you suffer for other believers, how you move towards lost people with love and gospel and not an unkeepable standard. For the law has been dissolved, and in its wake, union with God alone through Jesus' shed blood alone. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage and for what it means, God, for us as a church. Thank you that um, as we consider this, this next few months together, this summer, what this letter says to pastors, we're really basically saying, we're considering what does this letter have to say about the true pastor, Jesus Christ, uh, the chief shepherd, and how does he inform our life and save us and give shape to our gatherings um, to the works that we pour out for others as you poured out for us um, through big, even controversial questions around gender uh, and around preaching and around uh, widows and caring for the poor and money. I mean, really big things, but we pray that you would be Lord of all these sermons this summer, Lord of our lives and our church and help us to, um, to learn and to, and to submit to your grace and wisdom um, and your gospel through all this. Uh, thanks for your love for us and for shedding blood for us when you didn't have to, but you did it in love. In Christ we pray. Amen.